Hey, Roundstable listeners, we have an exciting opportunity for you to take a seat at the table. The Roundstable is looking to diversify and expand our team of co-hosts. We are looking for individuals who are interested in becoming a regular co-host and who want to take on a leadership role at the Roundstable. Interested applicants should have strong skills in critical appraisal of evidence-based medicine. The Roundstable has been downloaded over 200,000 times from a total of 138 countries worldwide. So we're looking for great people to help us continue to build this exciting platform. There is a lot of exciting work going on at the Rounds Table, and we would love for you to be a part of it. If you're interested, please contact myself with a simple expression of interest at kieran.quinn at mail.utoronto.ca. That's K-I-E-R-A-N dot Q-U-I-N-N at mail.utoronto.ca. The deadline for applications is the end of March. We look forward to hearing from you. Now on with the show. This is The Rounds Table. Welcome back, listeners. It's Kieran, your host. I'm a resident in general internal medicine at the University of Toronto. You're listening to The Rounds Table. Thanks for tuning in this week. We are joined by the lovely Dr. Laura Walker, who is a regular on The Rounds Table. We're always glad to have her back. Dr. Walker, thank you for coming back on the show. Thanks again for having me. Always happy to be here, Kieran. And we are happy to have you. So, Laura, take us through the article that you chose for this week. So the article that I chose this week was entitled Migraine and Risk of Cardiovascular Diseases, and this was a Danish population-based matched cohort study, and this was published in the BMJ in January of 2018. All right, Laura, tell us what's the bottom line for this article. So the bottom line for this article is that in a study of over 51,000 patients who suffer from migraines, they were found to have a higher risk of developing cardiovascular conditions, including myocardial infarct, ischemic stroke, hemorrhagic stroke, venous thromboembolism, and atrial fibrillation or flutter. And these were compared to similar individuals who did not suffer from migraines. Yikes. I don't know if I have a headache or I'm having chest pain all at the same time. Tell me, Laura, why did you choose this article? Why is this important? Is this new information? So I chose this article because migraines are a very common primary headache disorder, and they affect approximately 15% of the population at some point in their lives. And as internists, we actually generally don't see and treat migraines very frequently, but we're made aware of the potential increased risk of cardiovascular conditions that migraines may carry. And we try to be cognizant of this when prescribing certain medications, such as the oral contraceptive pill, for example. There have been associations in the literature with migraines in certain conditions, including ischemic stroke, especially in those who have migraines with aura. Although epidemiological data has been conflicting or lacking for many other cardiovascular conditions. And this is what the study uh, set out to examine. Full disclosure, Laura is a better physician than I. I never have thought about the oral contraceptive pill in people with migraines, but perhaps I will start today. Tell me, Laura, what was the design of this study and where did it take place? So this was a population-based matched cohort study based on prospective data from Danish medical registries that was conducted actually over a 19-year period from January 1995 until November of 2013. The country of Denmark has a national health insurance program allowing health data to be obtained from all Danish health registries, which uh, was very convenient. Uh, the Danes, the Danes are very on top of health research and health administrative research databases who did they include from their rich administrative data pool? So patients of all ages were included in this study, and they were included if they had a first-time primary or secondary diagnosis of migraine diagnosed during the study period, so between 1995 and 2013. 
These diagnoses were obtained from the Danish National Patient Registry and included all diagnoses made as an inpatient, outpatient, and in the emergency department. Uh, patients were excluded if they had a diagnosis of migraine before 1995 or if they had been previously diagnosed with one of the primary outcomes, so specifically myocardial infarct, stroke, peripheral arterial disease, venous thromboembolism, atrial fibrillation or flutter, or heart failure. The date of diagnosis of the first migraine is referred to as the index date in this study. Great. And who did they use as their comparator group? How did they compare their outcomes and their exposures? So for the control group, uh, a general population comparison cohort was generated from the Danish National Patient Registry. The researchers randomly sampled 10 people who were migraine-free and alive on the index date for each migraine patient who were matched on age and gender. So basically for every migraine patient, there were 10 controls. And for the controls, the same exclusion criteria were used. For example, they could not have a prior history of MI, stroke, etc. Very reasonable. Speaking of exposures and outcomes, what was the exposure for the study? The exposure for the study was a first-time primary or secondary diagnosis of migraine. And I think you've already described it to us, but just to make it crystal clear, what was the primary outcome that they were measuring? So the primary outcomes that they measured were the incidence of myocardial infarct, ischemic stroke, hemorrhagic stroke, peripheral arterial disease, venous thromboembolism, atrial fibrillation or flutter, and heart failure. And these were obtained using the inpatient and outpatient diagnoses recorded in the Danish National Patient Registry. So essentially, we're looking at cardiovascular outcomes in people with migraine-type headaches, correct? Exactly. Well, Laura, you've set the table nicely. What did they find? So the migraine cohort included over 51,000 patients, and the matched control cohort included 10 times more, so they included just over 510,000 patients. In the migraine cohort, over 2,400 patients had one cardiovascular event, and 575 had more than one cardiovascular event. The migraine cohort had higher incidences than the controls of MI, ischemic and hemorrhagic stroke, VTE, and atrial fibrillation or flutter. Specifically, the cumulative incidences per 1,000 people over 19 years for the migraine cohort versus the matched control cohort were 25 versus 17 for myocardial infarct, 45 versus 25 for ischemic stroke, 11 versus 6 for hemorrhagic stroke, 27 versus 18 for venous thromboembolism, and finally 47 versus 34 for atrial fibrillation or flutter. They did not find an association between migraine and the risk of peripheral arterial disease or heart failure. Yikes, my head hurts from all those numbers. Can you clarify that or simplify it a little bit for me, Laura? So these numbers were significant, but actually quite low. So even though migraines carried an increased risk of MI, ischemic and hemorrhagic stroke, VTE, and atrial fibrillation and flutter, the incidence rates were actually quite low. So to put this into context, if I were to follow 1,000 patients over almost 20 years, only 45 of these patients with a migraine would experience an ischemic stroke versus only 25 in the age-matched controls. I see. So low overall burden, but if you are talking about a thousand patients and we expand that up to say a country of 300 million, then you're dealing with a lot more strokes over a 20 year time period. Yeah, so it's more significant if you expand that to the population level. Okay, now complicated cohort study, there's always the question of confounding and all the different associations that might actually be the real cause or contributing to the effect. 
So what did they do to account for this? So the authors adjusted for multiple potential confounding factors, including diabetes, obesity, dyslipidemia, hypertension, cancer, and valvular heart disease. And their findings held true even after adjusting for these confounding factors. The adjusted hazard ratios that they calculated for all these cardiovascular conditions that I previously mentioned ranged between 1.25 and over 2, the highest adjusted hazard ratio being 2.26 for ischemic stroke. So in other words, over a 20-year time period, you had anywhere between a 25% and a 125% increased odds of having those cardiovascular outcomes. Yes, and the highest risk being that for ischemic stroke. Okay. Now, what about the time dependency to this? Was there a time frame where they found there to be higher periods of risk? Yeah, so the risk of cardiovascular disease was actually found to be the highest during the first year with actually having an eight-fold increased risk of ischemic and hemorrhagic stroke during this year and a two-fold increased risk of MIVTE and AFib and A-flutter during this first year. All right, now we get to the fun part. So there's going to be a lot of subgroup analyses, I imagine, in looking at this. Anything of interest that came out of particular associations there? So they did conduct a number of subgroup analyses, and I'm just going to highlight a few. Um, So they found that these associations between migraines and the previously mentioned cardiovascular risk factors were even stronger in patients who had a migraine with aura in women, and interestingly, in patients without any previous cardiovascular risk factors. They also found that most associations persisted in people who did not use NSAIDs or other migraine-specific drugs. Kind of neat. Always important to generate some new questions out of these studies. Now, what do you think overall as far as the findings and how much confidence you place in them? Do you have any major concerns? Um, So the main strength of the study was their utilization of a large sample size, which allowed them to study cardiovascular outcomes, even with these very low event rates. Uh, In addition, they had long-term follow-up, allowing them to pick up cardiovascular events over a longer period of time. One weakness of the study was that the positive predictive value of the diagnostic code of migraine in the Danish National Patient Registry is unknown. So it is unclear how accurate the diagnosis was for each patient who was classified as actually having a migraine. I see. So we're dealing with people with headaches that are probably migraines, but we don't know how accurate that diagnosis is. Exactly. There have been no validation studies for the accuracy of this diagnostic code, unfortunately. Okay. Important point. Tell me, Laura, what do you think are the main learning points of this article and how would you apply this evidence in the greater context of medical practice? So the main learning point from this article is that based on the findings from this study, patients who suffer from migraines have a higher risk of developing cardiovascular conditions, including myocardial infarct, hemorrhagic stroke, ischemic stroke, VTE, and atrial fibrillation or flutter. The authors mention, and as we previously mentioned, although the magnitude of increased risk is small, it still translates into a significant increase at the population level, given that the prevalence of migraines in the population is rather high. The authors also speculated why these findings may be true, i.e. why migraines may carry a higher cardiovascular risk. And they mentioned theories including endothelial dysfunction, vasospasm, shared genetic risk, 
increased mobilization during migrantist attacks, as well as the use of NSAIDs. Although, as previously mentioned, the association between migraines and increased cardiovascular risk held true even in patients who were not taking NSAIDs for their migraines. Right. So they're getting at the idea of a biological plausibility that migraines may represent a vascular type of dysfunction, and therefore it makes sense that these people would have vascular events. So what about how we're going to apply this to our own practice, or you can speculate how people who treat migraines may apply this to their practice? So personally, I don't treat many patients specifically for migraines, but I will pay closer attention to someone who has a history of migraines, and I'll try to be more cognizant that this is a significant cardiovascular risk factor. That being said, we don't really know whether migraines is a causal factor versus a only an association with cardiovascular risks. So by extension, we don't know if preventing and treating migraines will have an effect on lowering overall cardiac risk. It would be interesting to see if this will lead to future studies about migraine treatment and, for example, maybe primary prevention with antiplatelet agents or other strategies to see if these will lower the incidence of cardiovascular events. So it'll be interesting to see if there are any future studies in the next five to 10 years about this. Sounds like a new frontier for further trials. Excellent always generating new questions. Well, thank you, Laura. That was a lot of fun. I enjoyed the study and it it sounds like it was very important in the context of general health. So let's move on to the study that I chose for this week. Totally different topic, totally different intervention, but I still think very fascinating. It involves looking at falls in older individuals and decisions to transfer those individuals to the emergency department after a fall. Well, sounds very interesting and applicable to internal medicine. So, Kieran, what is the bottom line for this article? Well, Jefferson Williams and his team published this study in the Annals of Internal Medicine in December of 2017, and they conducted a prospective cohort study in over 900 older individuals who live in an assisted living facility. And they developed this clinical decision rule about advice on when to transfer to the emergency department following a ground-level fall. And this decision rule was found to be safe and effective in reducing the number of transfers by over 60% without any major concern for missing clinically important situations whereby somebody who wasn't transferred was put at undue risk. So why did you personally choose this article? Well, I do see a lot of patients in the emergency department who are transferred from either assisted living or nursing homes or long-term care facilities, as we call them in Ontario, Canada. And sometimes I ask myself the question, why was this person transferred? Did they really need to come and sit in the emergency room for eight hours and have a couple of different physicians and nurses look after them when really it seems apparent that their fall was, quote unquote, innocent? That being said, unintentional falls are the leading cause of non-fatal injury in adults older than the age of 65 years. But a lot of those patients, about 70%, are actually released home from the emergency department. Now, what's often not known is that a lot of these facilities have an algorithm in place whereby anybody who has a fall under their care immediately and unavoidably has to go to the emergency department. So the purpose of this study was really to ask the question, is there a way that we can design a separate algorithm to decide who is safe to stay after a ground level fall and who truly needs to be sent to the emergency department? So how did they go about this? What was the design of the study? They conducted a prospective cohort study, and they did it in 22 assisted living facilities in Wake County, North Carolina. Now, these assisted living facilities work in partnership with an organization called Doctors Making House Calls, 
and they also collaborated with the Wake County Emergency Medical Services. So a really good team effort on multiple different fronts. This area serves a population of just over 1 million people. So who were the patients in the study? So you had to be an individual who resided in one of those 22 facilities so that you could participate in the collaborative efforts of these teams. And the family physician who looked after you had to be one of the doctors who worked for the Doctors Making House Calls group. That worked out to be about 60% of the people in those facilities. The individual had to have a ground level fall, meaning they didn't fall off a ladder or fall down the stairs. They fell like a trip on the ground, for example, at their assisted living facility. And the emergency medical services were then dispatched with an ambulance who contained an advanced practice paramedic to then apply the clinical decision rule about whether that person needed to be transferred or not. And did it matter if they hit their head or not? Well, that's part of the clinical decision rule. So let me tell you about what the intervention, which is this this decision-making algorithm was. So first of all, they started by just conducting a usual history and physical examination about what happened and what does the person look like and their mental status, et cetera. And following this, they assigned the patient to one of the three protocols tiers. So tier one, let's call it a serious injury tier. These people were automatically transported to the emergency department. And they had evidence of a significant hemorrhage. Their level of consciousness was altered. They had acute neck pain that persisted. Or they had an emergency medical condition identified. Like, for example, they were having an MI or a stroke or something to that effect. Tier two, let's call this the elevated risk, but unsure of transfer group. This was a decisional transport. So the advanced practice paramedic could decide to transport that patient on their own judgment, or alternatively, they could contact the primary care physician on call for a collaborative discussion about disposition. Now, if patients fell and were receiving anticoagulant or antiplatelets, had borderline vital signs or orthostatic vital signs, significant pain, abnormal laboratory values that were conducted on site, presence of an obvious injury more severe than a simple contusion or a skin tear. These are the people who were typically assigned to tier two. Lastly is tier three. Let's call it the innocent, truly innocent fall category. These people were recommended to stay on site without transport to the emergency department. And these are people who had a simple contusion or a simple skin tear that could be treated on site. They didn't have any complaints about untoward symptoms. They had no obvious injury. They had no hip pain or signs of a hip fracture like external rotation and shortening. They had full range of motion of their joints and they didn't have any significant change in their ambulatory status. So Kieran, what happened after they applied this clinical decision rule? Well, to ensure the safety of all individuals, all patients were either transported to the emergency department or they were scheduled for a visit with their primary care physician within 18 hours of the call for emergency medical services. So they had rapid follow-up. And finally, patients were actually allowed to decline transport. Yes, they gave patients the choice if they didn't want to go to the emergency department, regardless of whatever the protocol recommended and whatever tier they were assigned to, they were allowed to say, I'm okay, I'm going to stay here. Good. And that seems like it's in keeping with patient-centered care. Mm -hmm. So what were the primary outcomes? Well, since this study is trying to actually evaluate a clinical decision rule that is aimed at reducing transfers, the most important thing to focus on here is its safety. So therefore, they looked at what they called time-sensitive conditions in non-transported patients. They defined a time-sensitive condition as any of the following, a wound that required repair, any fracture at all, any transfer and admission that led to an intensive care unit admission, 
the requirement for an operating room or cardiac catheterization, or if the patients died from any cause within 72 hours of the fall. So were there any secondary outcomes that they looked at? So because they wanted to evaluate this decision rule in reducing the number of transports, they looked exactly at that. So they measured the number of transports after a fall, and they looked at that by tier that the patients were assigned to. And they looked at the proportion of patients who received what they called appropriate care, which was basically anybody who was transported to the emergency department or successfully and safely managed on site to the, by the primary care physician without complication had appropriate care. And so they wanted to make sure that that was also in line after applying their rule. So what were the main findings of the study? So they approached just under 1,500 individuals to participate in the study and just under 1,000 agreed to participate. 359 patients had a total of 840 falls. And if you looked at the baseline characteristics and compared those who had an indication for transport to those who did not have an indication for transport, their overall characteristics were roughly the same. Although there were slightly more individuals with prior fractures and cardiac arrhythmias in those who were transported than those who were not, but I don't think that's a significant thing because probably they would be at higher risk for having an arrhythmia, for example, or a fracture, and they would get recommended for transport anyways. Now, of 210 patients in Tier 1, five said, I'm okay, I'd prefer not to be transferred, and otherwise, all of them were transferred. So 205 ended up being transferred who were recommended to be transferred. In Tier 3, that's the people who were recommended not to be transferred, there were 366 individuals, 352 were not transported, and 14 requested that they do be transported and undergo further evaluation. And the most important tier, the one that really where this clinical decision rule comes into play, is in tier two, which is the sort of decisional transfer tier. There were 264 individuals in this, and 184 of those individuals ended up not being transported to the emergency department. So what about the primary outcome? What did they find? So there were 553 patients who were recommended not to be transferred to the emergency department according to the protocol. And 11 of those individuals, so a very small fraction, actually had a time-sensitive condition. That corresponds to a negative predictive value of 98%. In other words, the algorithm correctly predicts or safely predicts that in 98% of the people that they didn't need to be transported because there was nothing that was serious that was going to come up afterwards. All of those time-sensitive conditions occurred in Tier 2 because everybody in Tier 3 stayed home and didn't have a problem, and everybody in Tier 1 went to the emergency department for evaluation. Now, three additional non-transported patients were diagnosed with a fracture as an outpatient on their 18-hour follow-up by their primary care physicians. And when it came to the sort of secondary outcome, most importantly, 63% of all the falls avoided an emergency department transfer, which is a significant reduction in transfers to the ED. So what you're saying, Kieran, is that because of this decision rule, 63% of all patients avoided transfer to the emergency department, and of these, only 2% uh, required treatment for a time-sensitive condition. Is that correct? That's absolutely correct. So it's a, it appears to be an effective and safe mechanism for reducing transfer to the emergency department after a fall. And because of the design of having an 18-hour follow-up, anybody who did require further care and treatment were seen by a physician shortly thereafter, and there was a small proportion of individuals to begin with. So are there any interesting points uh, that you wanted to make about the article? So today I wanted to focus a little less on whether the methodology was correct or not, because I think it was a well-done study. 
I just wanted to talk about the intervention itself and its generalizability or scalability to other places. This was a very resource intensive intervention. It requires expertise on the paramedics and nursing team who looks after them at the assisted living facility who to identify patients in tier two and make a decision about transfer based on the information at the time in the home. It also requires a lot of system building to have a collaboration between multiple teams of caregivers, the paramedics, the primary care physicians, the nurses in the home. And I think overall that is probably the main limitation to trying to scale this out across different healthcare systems. The only other thing I might say is that the overall number of time-sensitive conditions was low in patients transported to the emergency department. Less than half of them uh, who were recommended for transport actually ended up having a time-sensitive condition that I talked about earlier. So it, it suggests that the threshold for transport to the emergency department may have been too low. In other words, you may need to readjust your decision about how you assign people to different tiers to an even less conservative threshold so that you're not just transporting half the people automatically who may not need to be transported anyways. So what were the main learning points from the article, Karen? I think that the main learning points for this are that it is possible to design a clinical decision rule to reduce the risk of transport to the emergency department following a ground level fall in older individuals. What the final decision rule might look like that could be scalable across healthcare systems isn't clear because I'm not sure if this is totally viable to do in multiple different places. But I think as a first step in trying to reduce overall burden on our overburdened emergency departments across the world uh, is very important and an excellent proof of principle. And I congratulate the authors on a great study. That's all I have to say, Laura. Let's move on to my favorite part of the show. It's the good stuff segment where we're talking about what we are reading about. Laura, what were you spending your time reading this week? So there was actually an article that was just published this week in the CMAJ, uh, and it was entitled, Is There a Doctor on Board? Uh, Practical Recommendations for Managing In-Flight Medical Emergencies. This was written by uh, David Kodama and colleagues. It's actually a very interesting article that highlights recommendations for physicians who encounter medical emergencies while flying, and it's a great read as well. Uh, Just to highlight a few key topics that they touch upon, I don't want to spoil the whole article, but uh, they basically talk about liability issues, they talk about oxygenation, including what a normal oxygenation saturation should be on a pressurized aircraft, and they also talk about uh, important things relating to medication administration. So uh, I highly recommend it. It's a really great, great read because I would presume most physicians will fly at some point in their lives. So it's a good read and it's uh, helpful practically as well. I think I'll check it out. Certainly my entire experience of flying has been changed since I got my MD and more recently since I was certified as a specialist because now I pray that there's not going to be a medical emergency on my flight, especially when I have all my kids on the plane. And it's less enjoyable now, I must say, but perhaps this practical read will help calm my fears about what to expect and what to do in that situation. Well, Laura, I was reading an interesting essay in JAMA this past month, actually, written by Jennifer Abbasi, who talks about whether we need beta blockers anymore following a myocardial infarction. What do you think? Well, here, that's a great question. I think that it needs to be individualized for the patient. I think you need to look at the patient's heart rate, at their blood pressure, and also at their ejection fraction and their symptoms as well. So how often do they have angina and shortness of breath, for example? This is why I said Laura is a better doctor than me. It holds true. But 
More commonly, people react reflexively to say, there are some really good trials that show a mortality benefit with beta blockers, so therefore everybody who's had an MI ever should be on a beta blocker. And what Dr. Abbasi talks about in her essay is that those trials were old by comparison now. And a lot has changed, including the introduction of statins and ACE inhibitors in the management and reduction of risk following a myocardial infarction. And we have not reevaluated the efficacy of beta blockers in a randomized trial in the modern age of cardiovascular care. And she talks about a couple of very important administrative data studies that look at people who uh, were on the three different medications. So that's a statin, a beta blocker, and an ACE inhibitor following myocardial infarction. And she breaks them up into patients who were on all three, who were on just an ACE inhibitor and a statin without the beta blocker, or different combinations of them all. And what the these studies have shown is that there actually is a mortality benefit in the patients who are on ACE inhibitors and statins without a beta blocker, and no mortality benefit in patients who are just on a beta blocker alone without the ACE inhibitor or the statin. Um, and that holds true across the different combinations in isolation or as a combination. So it raises the question about how much are beta blockers actually doing in the modern age of cardiovascular care? And should we be applying it reflexively across all patients based on trials that are old? That's very interesting, Karen. Mm -hmm. We'll have to see if there are any new trials that come out in the near future. I'm glad you said that. It just turns out that there is. There's a huge study coming out of Sweden called the Reduced Swede Heart Trial, where they're randomizing 7,000 adults with normal left ventricular ejection fraction to a beta blocker between day one and seven after an acute myocardial infarction. And they're going to try to figure out over a one to three year time period whether the beta blockers are actually beneficial in the context of modern optimal medical therapy for cardiovascular risk reduction. Now, unfortunately, we have to wait till around 2020. So stay tuned. I'm sure we'll cover it someday on the rounds table, but that's a few years off. Well, Laura, thanks for joining us as always. It was definitely an irreverent discussion today, and we look forward to having you back anytime you like. Thanks again for having me, Kieran. The Rounds Table is hosted online by Healthy Debate. You can read more at healthydebate.ca slash roundstable. Follow us on Twitter at Roundstable or on Facebook at facebook.com slash roundstablepodcast. Roundstable would not be possible without our fantastic team of on-air and behind-the-scenes members. Thank you to our producer, Emily Hughes, audio editor, Emilio Garcia Flores, communications director, Anthony Maher, segment developer, Shaliza Halani, and faculty mentor and founder of the Roundstable, Amol Verma. I am your weekly host, Kieran Quinn. Join us next week for an irreverent discussion of the latest medical research, because who knows what they have in store for us.